I had a conversation with a gentleman this week, and um, it made me think of this passage. Um, I was already planning on preaching it, but it, it drove it home to me. I think what is what what the Lord one thing the Lord is teaching us here. So this man um, lives in Tennessee, but his son is in was in Florida, uh, and playing. He was a 16 year old boy playing football and very popular in school. Uh, enjoyed favor among his his uh, peers and among the teachers, and then all of a sudden. One day, he went and killed himself. He committed suicide. And that was last September. And as the father recounted this to me, you could just see the pain in his heart that he had, been, had not been there, been able to be with his son, that he had not been able to, that he wanted to be a good father for him. He himself had grown up without a father, and he wanted to serve his son, and now his son was gone. And I just thought, man, this, this man, as he tried to express his grief in the short conversation we had, he said, I was saying, he was groaning inwardly. And the creation groans. And we groan. And the spirit groans. For a liberation from the bondage that this world holds. And that's what this passage declares to us and illuminates for us. That hope for liberation from bondage of these terrible situations like the one this gentleman had experienced. And I want us to consider this together. To take a serious look at what the suffering that we have to face. But also to look at the hope, certain hope that we have. And so we're going to look at it under, three, under four kind of themes. The present bondage, the population, the resulting hope. And the present help. And you can find an outline in your bulletin that will enable you to see that. Um, and uh, you can follow that along as well. Melinda, would you be willing to shut that door slightly? Because there's like a, I'm being blinded every time I move this way. So thank you. So the present bondage. <laughs> So Paul speaks of our our present suffering, which we all know that we have, as a sort of bondage. And he says that this bondage is not just of us as individuals, but it is a bondage of the whole of creation. Listen to what he says in verse 21. He says, says, For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but the the will of one who subjected and hoped that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay. He says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth. It is a bondage of creation. Sometimes people wonder, you know, why is, is there so many problems in, in the world? Why does there seem to be so much scarcity? A big answer to that is because the world is not as God created it to be, but as it is because of the sin of our first father, Adam, and all the sins we've added to it. That, that made brought this world under the curse that subjected it to bondage. And this bondage, even though we've come to Christ, is something we still experience. The Apostle Paul is going to encourage us in this passage. And if you read on to verses 31 through 39, passages you may have heard many times, 
some of the most encouraging passages in the Bible, but they come in the context of a serious look at the bondage and suffering that we experience in the present time. There is in this world nakedness and peril and sword and dangers and famine. There is this suffering, and it's something we all experience. And this bondage that we have, he describes as causing a groaning, a deep, inarticulate sound in response to to pain or despair. He says the whole creation, as it were, is groaning for this liberation. As it says in verse 22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And then he goes on to say that it's not just the creation that has been groaning, but we ourselves as part of creation are also groaning. Verse 23 says, not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we eagerly wait for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. The suffering causes a groaning that is longing for this liberation. This idea is clearly taking up a theme that Paul is not inventing himself, but as one of the most important themes of the Bible, which is the exodus, the moving out from a place of slavery and suffering into a place of glorious liberation. And as, as we read this, I'm sure Paul had in his mind something like what we read in Exodus chapter 1. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out in their cry for help because their slavery went up to God. That's what we're talking about. There is this, as we experience the sufferings of this life, there is this groaning within us and that goes up to God. But interestingly here, we see that it's not only the creation, it's not only us who groan, it's also the Spirit who groans with us. It says in verse 26, in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness, we do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. It's the same word that is used to say that the Spirit joins us in these groans. And it reminds me of what God said through the prophet Isaiah concerning the sufferings of the Israelites. In Isaiah 63, verse 9, it says that in all their distress, he too was distressed. And the angel of presence saved them. In all their distress, he too was distressed. We see that the Lord enters into our distress and groans with us in the midst of that. But these groans are going to be answered And they're going to be answered in a glorious liberation. And it is coming. Our groaning is not something that will go on forever. Our groaning will come to an end when the Lord liberates this world. Listen to how he describes it in 21 22. He says, The creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay. And it's going to be brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. That is the destiny of this world. Not bondage to decay, but freedom and glory. And he goes on to say, we know the whole creation has been groaning, but he says it's coming into freedom and glory. Indeed, he's so convinced of this that he says in verse 28, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. It's a verse you've probably heard. It's one we repeat. But what he wants to say is that the glory is so certain, the freedom and glory and liberation is so certain 
that we can look at the big picture and say, in all things, God is working together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And he says it's something that's certain. There was part of God's plan was to permit the fall, but also his plan is to bring people out of it. And he says, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Those whom he predestined in time, he called them to come unto him. When he called them to come to him, they were justified. And a glory began inside them that will be ultimately realized in the new heavens and new earth. That is the promise. As he says, and those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. That is the certainty of this liberation. And so, because of this liberation, even though the suffering is often horrible, like of the friend I mentioned there at the beginning. Yet Paul can say in verse 18, I consider that the present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. That is an amazing statement, isn't it? He's saying this liberation, this freedom and glory we enter into, when it's fully revealed to us, when we see what happens... Um, it'll make all that we experience now, all the suffering, seem not worthy to even be compared to it. That is an amazing statement. It's kind of hard to believe. It's one that we'll have to think about. We have to enter into, especially we're, in the, we're right in the middle of suffering, right? But this is the, the promise of the liberation. Now, I want to center in on what the nature of this coming liberation is. Because it is... It is important for us to understand it so we can see how God is working in the present time. Because the nature of this coming liberation is a a transformation to glory. It is a glory that will be revealed in us. It is the freedom and glory of the sons of God. It is a glorification. It is what uh, Paul said in Romans 5, 2, that we, we now have access into this grace by which we stand in faith. And we have hope in the glory of God. Not that we'll see his glory, though that's, part, that's another point. But that we will be transformed to reflect the glory of God. That's the hope that we have. This glory, when it is fully revealed, will be something visible. So that will shine like the stars in heaven. But it's already begun inwardly. And what is that inward work? It's to transform us into a people who are like God, who have the character of God, who just as the Lord is compassionate and gracious and kind, so are we. Just as the Lord is just, so are we. As he is holy, we are holy. And really, there is no greater goal than this that we can have, to be transformed into the glory of God. What other thing could you have that would be more glorious or better than to reflect the glory of God? What other thing could you receive that is less dependent on the world than to come that comes from God and reflects God and to be like God? If God is the greatest being, the most blessed, then what could be better than to be like him? And that's what this coming liberation will do. It will make us completely like God. Not in the sense that we'll be infinite in knowledge, but we'll reflect it in a perfect way in our character. And therefore, we have hope. Let's want to look at next the resulting hope. The result of the promise of the coming liberation is hope for us. And remember, hope is not just how we often use it today, you know, to say, I hope I'll have a good lunch today. I may or may not. 
But this is hope in the sense of a firm expectation that these things will come to pass based on the word of God and his promise. We are saved, he says, in hope. Not everything have we received. When we came out of the darkness into the light, we came uh, out from the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of Christ. We turned from our sin unto, unto Jesus. We were saved in hope that there was going to be more, that there was going to be a greater blessing. And we are looking for this hope. As I like what the Nicene Creed says, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and a life everlasting. This is what Paul says in verse 25. If we hope we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. We have an expectation. And if it doesn't come, we know it's coming. And so it gives us patience and strength. And this hope is something that changes our view on all things. One of the ways you might say, take this passage, if you just read it in the abstract, is our present sufferings are not worthy to be compared to the glory of that is to be revealed in, in us. We could just take it like, well, now we just have bad things and then we'll have good things and there's no connection whatsoever. But that's not what, the, that's not what is being said here. The things that happen in the present, far from actually doing us ultimate harm, are actually working out for our good. So that God takes the suffering and the bad in this world and he uses, that to, uh, he uses it to transform us into greater glory. That's what he means when he says that we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called into, according to his purpose. That's where Paul says elsewhere, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, that these light and momentary afflictions, really, Paul, <laughs> we might say, are working for us an eternal weight of glory. It's not just that it's someday we'll get that glory and we have afflictions now. It's that these are working it and actually bringing it about. And that's what Paul said in Romans chapter 5. As soon as he says we hope in the glory of God, he says we also boast in our sufferings. Why? Because our suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance builds character and character brings about greater even hope. And so he's saying this process of transformation, this process of glorification is actually carried about through the sufferings that we experience. And then that gives us hope, even in our greatest suffering. And so the, this hope then empowers us to live well in all circumstances. This hope of this coming liberation and its connection with present events gives us, empowers us to live well in all circumstances. What this means is that we can accept all outcomes as contributing to the most important outcome of our lives to make us like the glory of Christ. We can accept any outcome because we can trust that the Lord is going to use that to accomplish the most important thing to make us like Christ. Putting it in the form of a, a syllogism or a logical argument, it says, all things work together for the good of making us like Christ. Whatever happens to us is an event that will make us more like Christ. Therefore, we can welcome with joy even our sufferings because they will make us more like Christ. That doesn't mean we don't feel pain. That doesn't mean we don't grieve. It doesn't mean we don't feel sorrow. But it means that we can rejoice even in our sorrowing, as the Apostle Paul says, because even while in one sense we might not want them, 
On the other sense, we know that God is going to use all things to make us like Christ. So it doesn't matter in some sense what outcome comes out of whatever we're doing because God will use that to make us more like Christ. Now let me apply this to a situation I was talking about with another, another gentleman this week. I was, talking about, I was thinking about fostering. Now you want to talk about a fostering children. You want, to, you want to talk about something that's a very uncertain endeavor? Fostering is an uncertain, uncertain endeavor. And by being involved in the lives of those who've been there, just the amount of fear that goes on, anxiety over what's going to happen, you get attached to those children, and you don't know really how long you'll have them. And that is really hard. What if you don't get that child? What if you have to say goodbye to them? I mean, that's, that's where the rubber hits the road here. Can you trust the Lord with those outcomes? Man, that's going to be hard, right? Now, but here's the thing. We don't have control over that outcome. You can't really control it. We like to pretend like we can control all the outcomes. But we can't control the outcomes. And so, really, I would just say this. Let's assume for a moment you're not a Christian. And you don't, and you don't even believe in God. Well, just for your own mental health, probably good to let go of the outcomes or hold them loosely. Right? Because it's just going to cause you anxiety over things you can't control. And that will put you in bondage. It won't allow you to actually live well in the present and focus on the things you need to do where you do have control. So, it's a good idea. I mean, I think everybody can actually agree with it if they think through it. But, we don't just have to say, well, we let go of outcomes and they could be terrible and we just have to learn to live with that. Because we can have hope in every situation, even in the worst situation. And embracing this increases our hope. That we can say, whatever the outcome, God is going to do something noteworthy with it. God is going to do something amazing with it. In the end. And it will all be clear in the right time. So maybe thought, take it, kind of applying this a little bit further. It reminded me of a quote from the philosopher Seneca, who lived in the first century. And he described, he wrote a lot about letting go of outcomes. And uh, his, his rough writings are really profitable, as Tertullian says. Uh, well, he says, Seneca is mostly ours. Because <laughs> he's like, we can get a lot of stuff out of this. So here's what he said. So the wise man will develop virtues, if he may, in the midst of wealth. Or if not, in poverty. If possible, in his own country. If not, in exile. If possible, as a commander. If not, as a common soldier. If possible, in sound health. If not, enfeebled. Whatever fortune the wise man finds, he will accomplish therefrom something noteworthy. And I think that's our calling as Christians. Whatever God brings our way, to take it and do something noteworthy with it. And to seek to, to, you, to accept whatever place God has put us. I said we have an opportunity to serve the Lord in this time. Now, Seneca did not know about the resurrection of Christ. And I, what I, what, one of the things as, as Christians throughout the ages have reflected on his writings as he kind of says these things, like, if he can get this without the gospel, why can't we get this with the gospel? 
If he could not, we see the resurrection of Christ, and so we know what the end is, (laughs) that all things are going to work out well. In the end, we know that this is where history is heading, and it's where it's heading for us. But we also know this, that even if we don't accomplish something noteworthy from whatever circumstance God puts us in, he will accomplish something noteworthy from the sufferings that he puts us in. And he's working above and beyond it. That's the promise of his grace. So how do we get there? How do we get such a mentality? Well, one of the key means that we have here is that we are to pray. We are to seek the Lord. The groaning that we have should ascend heavenward. So we seek the help of the Lord for a change of perspective. We ask him to, for a, we ask him for help. We ask him for deliverance. We ask him for strength if we have to suffer. We ask him to enable us to endure if we have to endure. And his help is totally available. Ask and you shall receive. But what Paul says here is that prayer is not just about what we do. He tells us something rather amazing about prayer. And that is that we have the Spirit. Verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And so when I think of this, when I think of this, it's like almost like um, God is taking our prayers, you know, which he does like, and he's supercharging them with the power of the Spirit. So it's almost like when we go forward, we're doing something much greater than we think we have, not because we're so great, but because the Spirit is working within us and for us and supercharging those prayers and and doing something amazing with them, even better than we think. You know, as our session is called, as our elders have called us to enter into a season of prayer, as we contemplate the future. And as we do this, we may not know always know what to say, what to pray about. But here's the thing. The Spirit does. And He's there with us. And He's groaning with us. And He's praying for us. And He's supercharging our prayers. And if we see that, then we can enter into the Lord with hope. And then if we pray, that will lead us to more hope. You know, I found oftentimes when I'm just thinking about situations or just worrying about them or just trying to figure them out, then it's like, I'm not sure if this is going to work out. But when I bring it before the Lord, I can walk away saying, why are you cast down my soul? Hope in God, for I will yet praise him. Prayer builds hope. It builds the firm expectation that whatever occurs, there will be glory. There will be liberation. And that will be, we'll experience it now and in the time to come. We, can, we will know That all things work together for our good to conform us to the image of Christ. So may this encourage our hearts in every circumstance we find ourselves. Amen.